Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Today, we're going to close on this case, the murder of Barbara Stoppel and the wrongful conviction of Thomas Sofano. And then I'm going to tell you about Terry Arnold. So please, don't leave me. We last left off with Thomas Sofano finally being granted a pardon, and he was completely relieved of any charge to being involved in the murder of Barbara Stoppel. The investigation continued on with the knowledge that Thomas didn't murder her, and it was time to finally pinpoint the real killer. Five days after Barbara was attacked, her mother was approached in the hospital by a man in the lobby. He introduced himself as a truck driver that often stopped in at the Ideal Donut Shop, and he was a friend of Barbara's. He wanted to know how his friend Barb was doing after hearing of her attack. Muriel Stoppel told Terry that Barbara was still unconscious and that it wasn't certain if she would ever wake up. It was a grim situation. Terry seemed concerned and requested perhaps Muriel could give him a call if anything changed in Barbara's condition. He handed her a piece of paper with his name and address on it, and it had a phone number indicating the name Donna. If she answered, that was his mother and she could take a message. Muriel thought he was very strange, and she informed the police of this odd visit. Well, but it's smart because... He's going to find out somehow or other that she's still alive. You know, he hasn't seen the obituary. He's probably called around to find out where she is. Whatever the case may be, he, he realizes this girl is still alive. So some of it is as simple as most hospitals won't give you information over the phone. And so maybe if I, if I go there, I can learn something. Under any guise, maybe if I go there and, and then when the hospital still won't give him information, but the mother comes out, well, for one, now... He, you know, he's going to know in his head that if the mother down the road recognizes him, he can always say, well, yeah, we spoke in the hospital. Likewise, if he can get a chance to actually get as far as the room, even just the door to the room, and then Barbara later recovers and walks away, he can say, well, of course she kind of recognizes me. She saw me in the hospital right after. You know, and so the whole that police use about serial killers is he injected himself into the investigation. And usually that's just flat out to find out. What do you know? You know, you, you come up with this plausible deniability. There's some other reason why he might recognize you or her mother might recognize you or your DNA might be around or, you know, obviously less sophisticated at the time. So the next day. Terry was visited by two detectives at his apartment, which happened to be across the street from the Ideal Donut Shop. Since he was a potential witness, they showed him the composite, but Terry said he didn't know anything about the case and that he didn't recognize the image. Later, they spoke to another customer of the shop named Garnett. Garnett was in the shop around 11.30 a.m. the day of the murder. He recalled seven other customers at that time. There was Christmas music on the radio, and when it changed to a country song, a loudmouth patron called out, I see somebody likes country and western music. He was very unusual. It appeared he was shouting, but not really to anyone specific. He was just blurting out loud. 
It was that, combined with his rather strange mannerisms, that prompted Garnett to observe him closer. He described him as 22 to 26 years old, 5'11", with a medium build. His pockmarked face was very noticeable, and he also had a mustache and was wearing a brown cowboy hat, and he had on a dark ski jacket with blue jeans. Garnett looked at the composite and said it did look like the man. The hat matched his, and basically it looked similar to the strange man that he saw that day. Sadly, the promising lead was overshadowed by the announcement that Barbara had succumbed to her injuries. No longer was it a vicious attacker they were looking for. They were now looking for a murderer. Tips funneled into the police tip line. One man named Scott Pickall was in his early 20s. He said he saw the composite, and he suspected it was a man that he knew as Terry Arnold. He informed officers that Arnold was a thief and he usually did wear that cowboy hat and cowboy boots. Even more concerning, he felt that Terry was capable of an act that violent. Although the information Terry gave, with his address at his mother's home, police had him in their files as living on Furby Street. When they went there and saw the caretaker, the caretaker turned out to be Lila, Terry Arnold's aunt. She directed them to the address on Cromwell, where he was now living with his mother. The officers were shocked when they realized that it was right across from the crime scene. More shocking was that she recognized the composite as very similar to Terry, and said he wore glasses with frames as in the picture, and a similar cowboy hat, basically all the time. After learning that two officers had searched the apartment of Arnold and his mother, they contacted them to find out what information they gathered there. No evidence of a cowboy hat or boots, but he did wear glasses that were similar to the composite. Both said he seemed kind of strange. While attending to the search, they were not aware that Terry always wore the hat and boots. This directed the two investigators to also go to Arnold's address on Cromwell. Terry was not there, but his mother was home. She gave them a tip that they may find him at the Salisbury house on Portage Avenue. That was where he had a girlfriend that worked there. His girlfriend, Jackie, lived on Burnell Street. On the report the officers filed, they noted it was odd that Arnold was so interested in the victim, considering she'd only worked there for a few weeks. Early the next morning, the investigators made their way to Salisbury house, and there was Mr. Terry Arnold. He was at the counter having coffee, and he did strike them as very similar looking to the composite. His acne-scarred face was very apparent, and he appeared much older than 19. He was brought to the cruiser for questioning about the homicide, where he informed one investigator that he'd already been questioned the day after he'd gone to see how Barbara was doing at the hospital. He told the officers to check with the staff to account for his location the evening of December 23rd, and he singled out Jackie as one person who could vouch for him. Terry was held in the cruiser while one officer went back into the restaurant to interview Jackie. She told him she had only known Terry for a month and that since then he was a regular customer. He would come in before her shift at 11 every night and he would stay for the entire evening. It is of note that Terry rarely worked at any one job for more than three weeks to a month he was usually on some form of social assistance, like unemployment benefits or disability for being hurt at work. 
he had the time to stay up all night drinking coffee and talking to the staff. And she was able to recall him being there on December 23rd when she arrived, which was typical. Arnold was brought in for questioning. He had a diary with him, and that diary noted that officers came to his home to see him about Stoppel. He'd been in custody until December 15th in 1981, and that since then, he'd not replaced a cowboy hat that he used to own. His alibi was that he was at the Dominion Center getting milk and bread. He went home and fell asleep. He'd asked his mother to wake him up at 8 o'clock at night, where he got up and went downstairs to catch a ride with his mom's friend, a cab driver named Reggie. Terry told him that Reggie dropped him off at the North Star downtown instead of at the Salisbury house because he had received a call for a taxi pickup. So Terry went on to take the bus the rest of the way. His statement was that he arrived at the Salisbury house at 8.40 or 8.45. That's the same time that the 911 call was made for police to get to the ideal donut shop. Detectives called his mother to see if his information could be corroborated. Her claim was that she'd been ill and wasn't really sure, but suspiciously, she worked into the conversation that her son hadn't worn a cowboy hat since he had been released from prison on the 15th of December. When approached, the cab driver said he didn't see Terry in a cowboy hat since his release from prison either. Dropping off Terry at the North Star seemed fairly familiar to him, but he wasn't able to say for certain what date that was. As well, other members of the Salisbury House staff were approached about the time they saw Terry and when he arrived on the 23rd, but they all said they didn't really know him. Now, Terry was considered a suspect with no alibi. In the meanwhile, another tip led two detectives back to the Salisbury House where they met with the manager named Betty Ann. She said she had seen a man very similar to the composite with Jackie, one of her waitresses. She added that he usually wore a cowboy hat, but in the past several nights, he was showing up in a black toque. So, off to Jackie's place. She states that the police had previously interviewed Terry the day after the Stoppel murder. Terrible policing meant that these two investigators were not aware that Terry was currently in custody being questioned. The officers believed that they could rule out Terry Arnold because he'd already been interviewed and cleared. It's interesting to note that the manager at the Salisbury house didn't know Terry before his release from prison on December 15th. Yet, she stated he had always worn a cowboy hat up until the last few days. Another tip that same day came in from someone of real note, Terry Arnold. He'd only been released a few moments before he'd gone into a McDonald's, which appeared to be in the same lot as the Ideal Donuts and across from his apartment. He claimed to have spotted a man resembling the suspect, and he named Robert Fournier. Quickly, however, Robert was eliminated. Later, a tip came in from James Septon. He lived close to the Dominion Center. He reported that he had overheard at a New Year's party that the killer lived on Cromwell. The next day, he saw a man that looked similar to the composite entering the Cromwell apartments and up to suite number 9. A new set of detectives went to 925 Cromwell and felt the man they met there did match the description. 
Upon talking to him, they found from Terry that he had been questioned several times. They phoned it into Sergeant Ken Biner, who told them it was fine to leave and not make a report. On January 17th, two sergeants gathered up Terry to come into the police service building to be questioned. Here, Terry admitted to meeting Stoppel after he was released from prison. He knew her only as Barbara. He admitted to seeing her two or three times and said that he once had a crush on her. This was his reasoning for trying to see her at the hospital, but he was directed away as only immediate family was allowed to see her. That was when Muriel Stoppel was asked to meet him up front and at his request update him on her condition. Terry was adamant that he did not go to the ideal donut shop on the night of the murder, and of course that he was in no way involved. After agreeing to submit to a polygraph, he was released. The polygraph was never done. Arnold, once again on January 22nd, contacted the police to say he saw yet another man matching the composite at the shopping center. Nothing materialized from Terry's second tip. Later, another caller who refused to identify herself said that she saw the man responsible for the murder with a friend of hers on the same day that Terry called in the second tip. She told the tip line that his name was Terry and he was the cousin of her friend who resided on Furby Street, which is where Jackie reportedly lived. The caller claimed on two different occasions she had seen Terry at the Salisbury house wearing the same clothing. Except one thing was different. He'd been wearing a toque and not his usual cowboy hat. On February 4th, the police showed John Dirksen and Marcel Gluck a collection of eight Polaroids of potential suspects. One was of Terry Arnold. Each claimed their guy was not in the collection of photos. This isn't very suspect to me, considering the photo was of Terry without his cowboy hat. I barely recognize my father without his cowboy hat, but I digress. Arnold's claim of being a truck driver was never investigated, and his alibi seemed to fizzle the more that it was checked out. Simple surface inquiries would have revealed that Terry Arnold didn't have the class of license that would allow him to operate a big rig, and that he was unemployed background records at the time would have clearly shown that records kept at the youth center in Winnipeg and the Seven Oaks Hospital had identified him as a classic psychopath, including countless stories of his manipulative stories and sexual deviances. Included was information about Terry at age nine. He took a five-year-old girl into the bushes and removed her clothing. He sexually assaulted her before leaving her there. Later in 1976, as Terry was 14 years old, he was brought to the Manitoba Youth Center, and there he was labeled with a sociopathic behavior disorder. At that age, he was becoming savvy at manipulation and playing one group of people against another. His constant challenging of staff and inmates made the other kids despise him, and staff were unable to handle him. Terry was regularly excused from his classes and he had a desk that he sat at in the hallway alone. He also had a propensity for violence and damaging property. His constant acting out included biting a male worker on the arm. He bit him so hard 
that he had to be hit many times before releasing his grip. Terry had developed a penchant for biting. Several accounts of Terry were similar, according to Andrew Michalajewski's book, Stopple. He was unkempt, he was dirty and reluctant to wash, so he had terrible acne and smelled ripe. His low self-esteem made him unlikely to bother to do any self-care. He was unable to internalize anything and was always searching for instant gratification. He was nicknamed Pigpen. As he aged, signs of sexual deviance began to show. He was stealing girls' underwear and hiding it. His room was full of property he had stolen, and he was a pack rat. He fashioned homemade books full of bra and underwear pictures from a mail-order catalog that he used to masturbate to. He saved his semen in an empty yogurt container, and he was totally preoccupied, even obsessed with sex. Terry was also a bully. He tried to dominate anyone smaller than him, and girls showing any basic decency towards him would be like magnets. He would zero in on them and focus on them. Also noted, however, was that he had an above-average intelligence. He was known to observe and study people, but he was an outcast that never fit in. The, the hair psychopathy scale and everything, I think a lot of people use that to imply the higher your number is, the worse a person you are. And I don't think that at all. I think all that means is how good of a profile are you? You know, your ability to understand what the people around you want to hear you say, what they're looking for, and they give themselves away with the tiniest, you know, little microscopic movements or flinches or glances somewhere. And you watch them and you figure out what it is that you're supposed to say and how you're supposed to say it. And they have an excellent memory because that's a survival skill is to learn how to profile other people and to remember what you said last time. Early in his life, officials felt that there really wasn't an appropriate facility for him, and it was likely he would spend the rest of his life in prison. After leaving Seven Oaks, Terry reportedly brought home a mentally handicapped boy from a carnival in Winnipeg. They had a sleepover in a backyard tent. The boy was screaming through the night, but was unable to leave because Terry had chained a dog in front of the tent, and that dog would growl every single time the boy tried to leave. Terry's search for a female later brought him together with a lady named Victoria. They lived together in an apartment, and it's reported that one evening, Arnold and his friend were drinking, and later, they bashed into the bedroom where Victoria was sleeping and handcuffed her to the bed. She awoke to Terry telling her that she had to have sex with his friend. She begged for him to stop, and eventually he was persuaded. Later, Terry moved with her to Calgary, and he got a job doing security. On occasion, he would bring home people to have sex with Victoria for money. Once, left alone with her, she would refuse to have sex with them. Later, she became pregnant with Terry. After he told her that if they had a girl, he would be the one to teach her how to have sex. Victoria moved back home to Winnipeg and aborted the baby. Arnold moved around and came back to Winnipeg in the summer of 1981, shortly after he was arrested for breaking into his sister's home. He was released, but later broke into another apartment, and then again was released. In the fall of that year, he broke into a coin vending machine and was arrested again, and released again. 
Because he didn't learn much deterrence from these smaller criminal behaviors, he began to actually get gratification from being a deviant. So where did it begin? It strongly suggested that his younger behaviors were resulting from emotional and physical deprivation and abuse. He later confided to Andrew Michalajewski that he was emotionally, physically, and sexually abused by several people growing up, including an aunt when he was just 17. This was in turn with his constant claims of victimization. When it comes to childhood and having a crappy childhood, that is a sufficient explanation and I would even argue a necessary explanation for someone to grow up and be a sociopath. Yeah, I, rather, it's certainly necessary. I, I don't think you can grow up and be a sociopath without having a crappy childhood. But of course, there are people in the world who have bad childhoods and yet are not complete sociopaths when they grow up. So it might be a necessary ingredient, but not a sufficient one. During the victimology stage of the investigation, Sergeant Michalajewski discovered that Barbara had worked at the Red River Exhibition, an annual carnival that comes into Winnipeg for two weeks and then moves along to the next city. Andrew was able to confirm the fact by speaking with Barbara's mom. As Andrew reviewed Terry Arnold's file, he saw that in June of 1981, his mugshot showed him wearing a uniform with the emblem of the company that ran the exhibition. Reviewing the reports, Terry had mentioned that he was indeed employed by the Red River Exhibition, so now it was clear. Terry knew Barbara long before she began working at the Ideal Donut Shop. If you can recall way back to when we were first introduced to Barbara, one thing that her boyfriend claimed was that Barbara was so outgoing and friendly that sometimes it could be interpreted as flirtation. However, she was just being Barbara. She was oblivious to the effect it would have on males as she behaved the same way with her female friends. With Terry's already defined fixation on any girl that would even just tolerate him, it's not a far reach to imagine the effect that Barbara would have had on Terry Arnold. It was also covered in episode two that the facts that led the police away from their initial interest into Terry and instead onto the path of Thomas Sofino. Andrew Michalajewski theorized that if any one investigator had sat and gone through the files independently, they would have dug much further into Terry and lost focus on Thomas. The problem was, not all information was shared with everyone involved in the case. The pieces of the puzzle were all there. However, each investigator was holding a handful to themselves. Now, of course, there are many investigative safeguards that are in place not to allow that kind of tunnel vision or confirmation bias that happens so easily. I'm in no way saying that it doesn't happen, but on the scale of this investigation, it's unlikely it would happen again. As Andrew and Detective Leggy continued to investigate Terry Arnold, they were able to locate a woman named Eileen. She had known Terry from the Manitoba Youth Center, and at that time she was 12 years old. Two years after Barbara's murder, Eileen ran into Terry again. Now she was 16 and was happy to join him for drinks, which led to a brief period of dating. Then, after such a short time dating, Terry persuaded Eileen's mother to bless them in marriage. She described Terry as a very heavy drinker who used pot and hash, 
She also indicated that, to her knowledge, Terry never did drive. Terry and Eileen headed east to visit his father in St. Catharines and stayed getting themselves an apartment. Their relationship inevitably turned stormy, with Terry threatening to kill Eileen and constantly losing his temper over any small thing. She claimed that in the beginning, things were okay, but as they settled in together, he consistently lied to her about almost anything and surprised her with his addiction to pornography. He didn't hold a job while he sat around watching action movies every day. He was so possessive that he told her, I'd rather kill you first, when she told him she was going to leave. And Eileen did leave. She said that in February of 1985, he seemed to be totally determined, and she was fearing for her safety. When a neighbor came over to check out the commotion, he found a serious fight in progress. He distracted Terry so that Eileen could grab her identification and run out the door. When the neighbor, named Derek, asked what initiated the brutal fight, she said he became enraged because she wasn't interested in having sex with him. Eileen provided some useful information about some of Terry's habits. She observed that he used to carry a butcher knife in his book and carried a hunting knife. He was very immature, yelling and punching walls when he didn't get his way, and he never would come down from the fury and apologize. And, like a stubborn child, he would still refuse to shower for almost five days, and when he did, he didn't use soap. Emotionally, he was immature as well. She never saw him display any emotion around her other than calm or angry. He was shallow and stilted emotionally, but he was not stupid. Well, and there's a a sophistication there that, you know, he may act like an idiot, but the reality is their lies on the one hand become very, very sophisticated and in the same moment, freaking ridiculous. You have a very, a very a thin slice of time to learn this stuff. And, and if instead what you learn is, no, I just need to say whatever it is in the moment that I need to say to get out of this situation or to get what I want. As Sergeant Michalajewski and his co-investigators later met with Calgary cold case officers, they learned of a 16-year-old girl named Christine Brown. She was reported missing on June 6, 1991. She was raised in Kimberley, British Columbia, and decided she wanted to join a carnival for a summer job. She ended up working on Vancouver Island, but was fired in June, so she returned to the mainland shortly after on the ferry with some friends. Later, she received a ride with a trucker to Penticton. She was separated from her friends, and she was last seen getting into a car with two men outside of an arcade in Penticton. RCMP had searched for her, but the trail was cold, and they were not able to locate her. It was as if she had vanished. That fall, October 31st, 1992, Christine was found in a wooded area near Headley, British Columbia. Christine had been murdered. She was found wearing a t-shirt that said, Mess with the best, die like the rest. Investigators doggedly searched for any leads that they could, and they asked all officers to review their notebooks and search for any indication of contact with Christine. One young officer had her name written in his notebook the day before she was reported missing. There had been a mischief call near the arcade, and her name was given as a potential witness. 
an employee who was working at the arcade had given her name. That employee was named Terry Arnold. The search for Terry was on. After Christine was reported missing, Terry moved to the far east coast. Only there a very short time, he would soon sexually assault three very young girls, 14, 12, and 10 years old. He had taunted the three girls, threatening them with murder and saying, you mess with the best, you die like the rest. The three girls were not silenced. They came forward and the following December, he was convicted of three counts of sexual assault and held in the Dorchester Penitentiary. The testimony of the girls repeated of his threats being similar to the slogan on Christine's t-shirt and combined with his naming Christine as a possible witness to a disturbance made him a suspect in the murder back in British Columbia. While being questioned at the penitentiary, he suddenly came out with the parallel to Thomas Sofino. He told the interviewing officer that Thomas had been convicted and he said he didn't do it and it was found out later that he didn't even though he was convicted. So, no matter what is said or done here today, there is going to be charges laid. And regardless of whatever they are, um, nothing I can say or do is going to change that fact. According to Sergeant Mikhailajewski, the officer had no idea that Barbara's killer was sitting in front of him. I look at Arnold. He, he wasn't set out to be a serial killer. I think that's because... The idea of the death and the killing, that wasn't really what it was all about. And in fact, he probably did feel squicked out in some way to get, you know, to use the fancy jargon. It was icky. You know, he wanted to get out of trouble. He wanted to avoid trouble for it. And he kept trying to pursue that. And he kept trying to up the ante. And he kept, you know, he had molestation charges and he had rape charges and he had violent charges. And he had all these different sort of, some of the charges were just rule breaking, taking things, you know. But those were object based. I want to get something done. I want to achieve some goal. And then I think the sex crimes were, were more about trying to meet this other set of needs in his head. Something didn't feel quite right and he kept trying to figure out how to feel better. Arnold was released and moved to Moncton, New Brunswick. He was under surveillance now by the RCMP. In a Mr. Big Sting, which is commonly used by federal officers, Terry was told by undercover officers that he could join their chapter of Hells Angels. The Big Boss confided that he had contacts with the RCMP and he knew that Terry was Christine Brown's killer. He told Terry that if he was going to join their club, someone else needed to take the fall for that crime, or he could not be a member. Terry admitted to raping and murdering Christine Brown, and he flew with the undercover officers to take them to where her remains were located, and he told them where he threw away her shoes. One of those shoes was located in the reported area, and finally, on May 18, 1997, Terry Arnold was arrested and charged with murder. During Sergeant Mikhailajewski's conversations with the Calgary police, he discovered that Terry was up to no good for most of the time between Barbara Stoppel's murder and his final charge for the murder of Christine Brown. He had fled Canada in early 1986 and went to New York. He continued to travel west to Virginia, Georgia, Oklahoma, Texas, California, 
and then on to Mexico. To this day, there are suspicions of some of the activity that he may be involved in, but nothing exclusively that he could be charged with. It's unlikely that he remained dormant during that time, as when he returned to Canada in 1987, he would strike again almost immediately. Calgary police found that Terry was living only feet away from where the body of Denise Lapierre had been found, a 17-year-old girl that was at a house party on June 21, 1987. It was a few houses away from where Terry Arnold was living. Someone had broken a glass in her house during the party, so she left and decided to go to her friend's house. Her friend lived a short walk away, right past Terry's. Her naked body, most of the blood drained, had been placed in the back lane, and it was just shy of Terry's house. As reported in Andrew Michalajewski's book Stopple, her body had been washed after several sexual assaults. Also, there were several lacerations forming a pattern on her body. Calgary investigators were not able to say what they were from, but Sergeant Michalajewski recognized the pattern as that of the small plastic spikes that stop a shower mat from moving around in the tub. In all likelihood, she was carried from Arnold's house to the back lane in a shower mat. Obviously, he had placed her in the shower to rid her of any evidence and drained her blood to make her lighter to carry. Also, the author and sergeant noted that she had a bite mark on her body, a behavior that dates back to Terry's youth. Terry Arnold was questioned about the murder that took place near his home, but again, he was overlooked, as officers had found a strong suspect near where he lived, and, like Thomas Sofino, he would be in the crosshairs instead. At that time, Terry had settled in with a woman that had an eight-year-old daughter. She told police that she was with Terry all weekend, and so the preteen became his alibi. And Terry, remaining a free man that didn't like to work, became her babysitter. His form of discipline was to sexually assault her and threaten to kill her and her mother if she told. In Sergeant Michalajewski's account, the young girl was raped well over a hundred times. After the murder of LaPierre, the girlfriend moved her daughter to Terry's home. He asked her to provide him with an alibi, telling the police that he was with them. She found him to be seemingly paranoid. When coverage of the girl's murder was on television, she reported that Terry said, the bitch deserved what she got. Later, she found a pair of blood-stained blue jeans in the cupboard under the sink of their house. Terry made her throw them out. Still, Terry is not a suspect in Barbara's murder. He was, however, on trial for Christine Brown's murder. He would not confess to any previous crimes, but he stated he could not have sex with the eight-year-old girl. The accusations were certainly falsified by his ex-girlfriend, and it wasn't possible because he claimed he was rather well endowed. He was charged with sexual assault and buggery for his abuses, but for some unknown reason, the charges were stayed by the Crown. Perhaps the courts were going to focus on the murder conviction first. That February, Terry wanted to discuss a plea. He would plead guilty to manslaughter and serve five years, and plead guilty to the sexual assault of the child, and agreed to serve eight years for that. Thirteen years in custody. Otherwise, first-degree murder charges would put him in custody for life anyway. 
so he was willing to risk a trial if they passed on the offer. Once he discovered that part of the agreement was that he would be a designated dangerous offender, he withdrew his plea. As Calgary staff reviewed Terry's known history with Sergeant Michalajewski, they covered that he had raped a girl in Chilliwack, British Columbia, named Dorina Green. He threatened her, telling her, you're not coming down from this hill. She begged him for her life and he decided to spare her if she would have sex with him again. After raping her the last time, he offered her $50 and he gave her his knife, telling her, This will protect you from assholes like me. Next, he instructed her to tell him first if she was going to the police so that he could run away. Before he headed to his vehicle, he ran into a male witness nearby. He pretended he was on a date with the victim, and sadly, when she reported the crime, he argued that the sex was consensual and he was not charged. So it's it's all power and control. And, you know, it's just, it all crime is. And so it's just, it bothers me, frankly, that sex crimes are set aside as different, as special, as worse. Because when you do that, that adds a layer of, of embarrassment and shame and blame and finger pointing that other crimes don't necessarily have. Well, it becomes trickier just because there is such a thing as consensual sex. And if your penis is the only weapon, then it can be harder to prove consent versus not consent. Whereas if someone is stabbed or shot, you know, for the most part, we're going to assume that was not a consensual experience because they were stabbed or shot. Again, in the book Stoppel by Sergeant Michalajewski, he reports that there were several other rapes and dozens of other criminal offenses since 1981. But there were too many to mention and there was no way to go back and secure convictions for any of them. By this point, you're certainly baffled by how this man had not been in prison and off the streets long before he had done so much damage. However, the hits keep coming. This is probably one of the sickest people I've ever researched. It's fair to say Andrew would agree with me, as he describes a few other shocking truths about this demented person's history. Terry was living in a campground in Cultus Lake, British Columbia. A 19-year-old Roberta Ferguson was hitchhiking near there on August 24, 1988. Witnesses described her as getting into a vehicle that matched one that Terry had access to. The composite drawing of the driver looked a lot like Terry Arnold. Her body was never found, but when Terry was questioned about her murder, his glib response was, How can they charge me with murder? She's missing. Later, Terry moved in with a family in the Maritimes. He was arrested by the RCMP for the Mr. Big Sting operation, and they found a videotape in a VHS recorder that Terry owned. While in a conference room, the video was played for Andrew and the other detectives investigating Terry by the Calgary police. The video starts with family members getting ready to go out to a party. It's overheard. We're going out. Terry is babysitting, so you better watch out. Andrew is shocked. The video continues on, and the scene changed to Terry masturbating in a hotel room. Andrew assumed he thought he had taped over that. Everyone else in the conference room had seen enough and wanted to turn the video off. 
Andrew, ignoring the teasing from the other people in the room calling him a pervert, said that suddenly the tape went fuzzy, so he pressed fast forward for several minutes. The laughter stopped when new footage came up on the tape. Now the young girl was in her nightie, and Terry was speaking to her holding the camera. In front of her were two cats that were mating ferociously until the female finally escaped from under the male. The young girl captures her at Terry's direction and holds her down for the male cat to mount and hump her again. Terry focuses on the bottom cat's face. Then he pans up and pans into the face of the little girl. She follows instructions from Terry and gets off her knees and sits down on the floor spreading her legs and back to the cat's and then to the little girl's crotch area. The camera is then turned off. Next to his propensity for animal cruelty, which involved Terry sticking a pencil into the rectum of a cat because he thought it was funny how they looked trying to walk. Andrew also had had enough, but he couldn't return back to Winnipeg without being told of Terry Arnold's finger tattoos. On one hand, each finger had the letters L, T, F, and C, and on the other, each finger had E, S, U, and K. When Terry would put his fingers together and cross them, it would make an enticing offer to ladies everywhere. This is assuming you could read them after his days of not showering. Following the briefing by the Calgary team, Andrew was later approached by one of the members telling him, Get Terry, Michael. If you don't, no one will. So back to Winnipeg. The investigation into Terry and his connection to Barbara Stoppel's murder was moving ahead. The next thing that needed to be solidified was his alibi provided by Jackie, the girlfriend from the Salisbury house. In original statements, Jackie Gerigal was assumed to be Terry's girlfriend. She worked as a waitress at the Salisbury house where Terry would hang out and drink coffee for a majority of the midnight shift. On the evening of Barbara Stoppel's murder, she was said to have arrived at work after 10 o'clock on December the 23rd. The sergeant told her he was calling about Terry Arnold, and after a pause, she divulged that Terry was into burglaries. And she recalled an incident where he stole baby's milk from her fridge. When she was asked about the nature of her relationship with Terry, and if she was his girlfriend... She laughed, stating that she was happily married then. He appeared lonely and she felt pity towards this fellow who seemed like he needed someone to talk to. And in regards to the cowboy hat, she claimed she had only seen him wear it once and she recalled that specifically because it was then that he asked a suspicious favor. That day, he came in around 2 or 3 a.m. and she described him as nervous and twitchy. He suggested that if anyone asked about his timeline that evening, to please say he was at the Salisbury house. Jackie did ask him why he wanted her to lie for him, and he expressed that he had a female that got him into trouble. This memory was anchored to the fact that he was not wearing what he normally wore. She had the feeling he was almost disguised. He didn't want to return to his apartment, and he was pleading with Jackie to go with her and he requested to use her apartment to store a few items. Jackie had a bad feeling about this, and she declined. But his persistence wore at her, 
and days later she agreed that he could store one bag at her place. She gave this itemization to the sergeant. The bag had a dark tracksuit with a woolen hood. There was something square at either end of the bag, and the bag contained something very heavy at the bottom. And finally, she noted there was something twisted, like a cord, at the bottom of the bag. A few days after the murder, Jackie reported that three customers were in the restaurant discussing the murder, and Terry was seated near them. He had abruptly risen and moved to another area. Jackie inquired why he had moved, and he again appeared nervous and twitchy, saying he didn't want to talk about their conversation, and it was bothering him. Jackie supposed that Terry may have known the victim somehow, and that was why he didn't like the conversation. Later, they touched on the subject of the murder, and he commented, She was a tease and deserved what she got. And the police were trying to frame him for the murder, and that was why he asked her to lie for him. Jackie, now becoming a key witness for her testimony, was flown to Winnipeg for further questioning. Her recall was solid and never changing from their previous discussions. One surprising memory, however, was her observation that Terry had a bunch of rubber bands that he played with in his pockets. And on one occasion, it was twine. It was something to note. Jackie was also shown the composite of the suspect again, and for what it's worth, she felt it looked like Terry Arnold. Terry's lies are now becoming more and more compounded, He did not have a girlfriend. He was not a truck driver. In fact, he was unemployed. He was not at the Salisbury house, and he had encouraged a witness to lie for him. The investigation continued on to who else was a witness that the sergeant had not heard from. Two witnesses, Hazel Barton and her friend Claudette Fontaine, said they saw Terry in the Ideal Donut Shop the day of the murder, bothering a waitress. They were able to identify Terry because he lived in the same apartment across the street as Hazel did. They were there between 3 and 3.30 p.m. And they both stated that Terry was wearing a cowboy hat, glasses, and cowboy boots. Their statement was taken on February 12, 1985, after Thomas Sofno had been charged. His lawyer, Greg Brodsky, interviewed Mrs. Barton again, but her memory had faded some and Brodsky didn't know that Terry's name was peppered all over the investigation because he was not provided all the notes. He did inform police of his information, but it wasn't acted upon. (laughs) Hazel Barton was subpoenaed to testify for the defense, but after she arrived, she waited and was never called to the stand. As Sergeant Michalajewski continued on sifting through the files and comparing his facts with the notes he discovered another painful tidbit. Arnold was in the Winnipeg Remand Center when Thomas was awaiting his trial. He was one of the jailhouse informants, claiming Thomas Sofno had confessed to him. He would be a witness if he could arrange an early release. He was prepared to testify that Thomas told him, of course I did it, and if you don't get off my back, you're going to get it too. Arnold was not called as a witness, but the sheer irony of the real killer pointing the finger to another man in court so he can arrange an early release is stomach-churning. 
Sergeant Michalajewski next would focus on trying to get a warrant secured to search the home of Terry's mother in Calgary. It was during this time that the feedback from the original Birchall report into the case was coming in, and one interesting side note is the DNA results. The mitochondrial DNA from Barbara's parents was a match for Thomas Sofino. Although this form of DNA doesn't show if the match is a maternal ancestor who lived thousands or only a few years ago because it's inherited exclusively from your mother who inherited from her mother and so on. It's still interesting to discover that they do have this relation. Judge Kopstein, who was presented with the arguments for the warrant based on details that Terry was guilty of murder. The investigators believe that there may be some written material that may link Terry to some of the crimes that they were investigating. To their surprise, it only took one hour for the judge to review and sign the warrant. He allowed for seizure of anything that they deemed important found in Donna Borchette's trailer in Calgary, Alberta. Before the warrant was executed, Terry Arnold would be interviewed at the Mission Correctional Institute. Detectives Brown and Allen would meet with him and informally record Terry's comments about the Barbersopple murder. As expected, Terry would lie and talk in confusing and roundabout responses. This is very typical of a psychopath that wants to direct the conversation and control the direction of the questioning. As North America's leading expert on psychopathy, Dr. Robert Hare had warned investigators early that Terry would continue trying and not give up. He would need to be challenged to explain things. He will have a need to be in charge. He also warned that psychopaths are deficient emotionally. They have no self-knowledge of their own emotions and they're unable to explain how they feel. Dr. Hare warned that emotions are like a poor second language to psychopaths. If asked to mentally process feelings, their circuitry works like blockers, closing off the ability to process that information. One emotion that they can process, however, is anger, and that anger is usually goal-directed. So, as the desire to not give up focuses them, they will even use technical jargon with people who already know the jargon, even though they have enough insight to know that they will likely be caught trying to communicate above their knowledge level. Lastly, he indicated that psychopaths are not treatable, and alarmingly, treatment can actually make them a better psychopath. Not surprisingly, Terry lied about every aspect of his life. He denied liking coffee, ever wearing a cowboy hat, or making tips in the case, and he denied knowing Barbara Stoppel. He agreed he may have been to the ideal donut shop, but he claimed he would never be there in the evening, and suspiciously, he denied working at the Red River Exhibition. Taking the advice of Dr. Hare, Brown and Allen pushed the issue. They pressured him on the summer of 1981. No one had said anything about Barbara's employment or her position there, so it was very telling when he finally offered, I may have worked there, but I didn't work the games booth or anything. 
Obviously, he was aware of Barbara's job at the exhibition. The next day, Sergeant Michalajewski and Detective Lance Colby, along with crime analyst Judy Wiltz and three Winnipeg officers, met at the Calgary airport. They reviewed the information from the interview conducted the day before as a group. It was decided the warrant would be executed the next day around noon. Upon arrival, they observed the trailer was decrepit and unkempt. They approached the trailer that looked like a horror movie set, and there was the monster's birth mother answering the door, Donna Borchardt. Sergeant Mikhailajewski described her as a frail elderly woman with grey matted hair. Her voice was coarse, raspy, and void of emotion. He was struck by her eyes. They appeared to constantly dilate and constrict. She asked what they wanted and was informed about their investigation into the murder of Barbara Stoppel. And once they indicated they would be searching through for Terry's belongings, she claimed nothing was stored there. His property had all been stolen when he lived in the Maritimes. The sergeant was looking at dozens of boxes stored on the porch, boldly labeled as Terry Arnold's property. When caught in the lie, she responded with ambivalence. Similar to her son... Or was it the other way around? Items seized didn't prove much in the way of evidence for the Barbara Stoppel investigation. However, it did give plenty of illumination into the mind of Terry Arnold. Known for enjoying writing short stories and articles, they discovered an interesting piece that included the motto, If you can't fuck it, then kill it. I suppose he felt he was clever but this is just another indication of his social and his mental stunted growth. Also, his goal-directed anger that fit the description of Dr. Hare's insight into a psychopath. Also stunted was his penis size. After his claim he could not have assaulted a young girl earlier because he is well-endowed, he would be outed as a liar again. Twice, in fact. His father claimed if he didn't have a string tied to it, you would never find it. While investigators spoke with former girlfriend Victoria, she was asked about Terry's claims of being well endowed. She laughed, and she said he had a peanut dick. Perhaps the insecurity about endowment is an irritant for psychopaths' healthy sexual identity, and when combined with that goal-directed anger, that self-hatred could be projected onto their victims, making them particularly dangerous. Obviously, to any well-adjusted person, the size of one's penis is inconsequential. You don't need the popular vote to have sexual wellness. And any major dude will tell you it's actually quite the opposite. Not to mention the serious problems for our evolution if we let every perceived imperfection about our sexual, physical identity define us entirely. There are certainly more important attributes to make you attractive and I would hazard to say most clear-minded individuals know this to be obvious. However, to a narcissistic psychopath, I can see this being another spoke in the wheel for serious sexual issues tying together with violence. Moving along, the investigation moved to Joanne. She knew Terry Arnold's sister, Tracy Arnold. Her recollection of Terry wearing a black toque and having scarring on his face matched up with previous discoveries. 
When shown photos of Terry, she became physically affected, shaking, and had no comment. Her information about Terry was similar to all accounts. He was unsettling. She called him evil creepy and claimed he threatened her when she once declined to have sex with him. She said he had pure hatred in his eyes, and when confronted with the fact that he was believed to be Barbara's murderer, she didn't seem surprised in the least. In fact, she recalled Terry's sister telling her that he was a suspect because Terry was in the donut shop that night. Her statements also provided a missing piece of evidence that would have helped the case. She claimed he once told her, yeah, I was a suspect, but they could never prove it. Now this other guy is going to jail. She asked him if he was the killer, and in a sinister response, he responded with, what do you think? And that concluded the questions for Joanne. Time was becoming another issue in the investigation by then. Terry could possibly be moved from the Mission Institute as there were concerns for his safety. The team decided that they would apply for a warrant to search his cell, his belongings, and the computer that he used for work. He did some editing for the inmate newspaper. Sergeant Michalajewski would attend to the mission with Detective Sergeant Brown to conduct the search on July 5th of 2000. Terry was in segregation because of threats other inmates made towards him. Ironically, it was not because he had been exposed as a potential serial killer and a suspect in the Barbara Stoppel murder, not even the exposure of him as a rapist and child sex offender. The prison inmates were more set on the crassness of letting another man do his time. Arnold was brought into the interview room, and Sergeant Michalajewski described him as unkempt and weighing about 240 pounds. He had greasy hair and visible acne piercing through his faded white t-shirt like small nipples. Terry tried cowardly to turn back when he saw who was in the interview room. He ran back to his cell, but it was already locked. He became furious and tugged desperately at the door trying to get back in. Andrew noted the irony of the tough guy who raped an eight-year-old girl over a hundred times is squirreling away trying to hide. His eyes were lifeless and he was enraged. He stood with his fists clenched, refusing to take a copy of the warrant. A cold-blooded murderer acting like a baby. Arnold had also been described as a serial killer, and for the most part, serial killers commit murder for some sort of psychological benefit. Due to the fact that his murders are poorly planned, most likely they were the result of rage and rejection. And as he would tell the sergeant later, it was a way of keeping the victim silent. As they proceeded to execute the warrant, the search didn't yield much. But Terry was getting the picture. They were on to him. They seized his computer and hard drive from the newspaper editing room and numerous photos and writings. Later, in an interview room, he was trying any tools in his toolbox to direct the interview. He continued with the provable lies about not having a cowboy hat, never carrying a knife and anything else he could lie about, even his distaste for red pistachios. When he was told of their awareness on his false tip and using the name Terry Barb, his mother's name, he looked confused and stared at the floor. 
They filled him in on their knowledge of his attempts to create an alibi by having the waitress Jackie from Salisbury House lie for him. Now he was really appearing confused and wanting to hear the rest of what they knew. The sergeant continued to taunt him and he volleyed back lies after lies. He was particularly concerned at the mention of the FBI possibly wanting DNA samples. They were investigating some murders that occurred in the United States. Many more months would go by without an interview, and slowly investigators were moving from a position of strength to one of weakness. To make matters worse, the bite analysis was still far from being completed in the Calgary case for the Lapierre murder, a case similar to the Stoppel case. A critical exhibit was missing, and the Crown was wavering on not charging Terry Arnold without a confession. Sergeant Michalajewski would later get Arnold to admit that not only did he know Denise Lapierre, but she in fact was in his house on the day of her murder. He would also confide that when she was in his house, she was bleeding from a small cut on her hand and he got her a band-aid. This was simply a way of explaining her blood being present in his home if police located any. Even this information would not be enough to lay a charge. They needed a confession. On November 28th, Sergeant Michalajewski received a phone call from the BC Crown Richard Peck. Arnold's appeal hearing was now set for May 8th, 2001 in Vancouver. Two applications had been brought up for a mistrial, and there was a possibility that the judge may concede the appeal and order a new trial in January 2001. The pressure was on to act. If Arnold got his appeal, perhaps he would be released. On February 26, 2001, police finally received a break. Birchall had received information that a friend of Terry Arnold's Aunt Lila named Charlene may have been told that Terry Arnold had killed Barb. At 4.15, Paul Brown and Sergeant Michalajewski interviewed Charlene at the public safety building. She recollected what Lila had told her. Thomas Sofno didn't do it. The person who did it, my nephew came over and told me the day of the murder. When he confessed to Lila, he said he had really screwed up and thought he had killed a girl in a donut shop. He'd come over late at night before any news was in the paper and the nephew's name was Terry. They asked why Lila didn't come forward years ago. Lila replied that he's crazy and I'm afraid. I thought he would kill me. Detectives Brown and Allen later interviewed Lila, but she had no recollection of the event. Sergeant Andrew Michalajewski reported that a few days later, the Calgary Herald and Vancouver Sun published the first in a series of articles titled In a Predator's Wake. The three-part investigative series exposed Arnold publicly for the first time. Crime reporters were freely interviewing and exposing him. Early in March 2001, Sergeant Andrew Michalajewski was notified that they would finally be allowed to interview Terry Arnold. It was recommended that the interview be done in conjunction with a warrant to obtain a palm print from him for comparison with the unidentified print that was located inside the ideal donut shop. He knew Terry was wearing gloves at the time, but he felt that the warrant would get their foot in the door for an interview. On March 13, 2001, the entourage arrived at the gates of the William Head Institution in the early morning. After clearing the security checkpoint, they walked inside the compound, and later, 
They were advised that Terry refused to be videotaped and was awaiting a call from his lawyer. He also refused to leave the prison on the spring order. After speaking with his lawyer, Brown and Allen escorted him out of the interview room to obtain his palm prints. Sergeant McAllajewski noted that just before noon, Terry Arnold was brought back to the segregation interview room and was questioned by Brown and Allen briefly. He appeared upset at something that was said to him, and he stood up from his chair and lay on the floor on his stomach, much like he would have done at the youth center. He was having a timeout, and their interview was over. Later that afternoon, Leger and Michalajewski got their chance at interviewing Terry. Immediately, Terry would attempt to control the interview by demanding it not be recorded. This leaves investigators in a precarious position, because later, they're up for criticism as not recording the notes verbatim. Also, the wording and inflection is an important part of the person's response to questioning. Andrew informed Terry that he was being investigated in the murder of Barbara Stoppel. It was satisfying for him to finally be able to deliver that message. Terry acknowledged that he understood, and under the advisement of his lawyer, he was not to say anything. The sergeant informed Terry that a search warrant had been executed at his sister's residence in Edmonton, Alberta, and that the main purpose that day was to collect Terry's palm print. Terry, however, seemed unaffected by this information, but preoccupied with an article being written by a journalist named Suzanne Wilton for a newspaper in Alberta. He complained that after he spoke to her, she had put words in his mouth. When requested, Arnold said no to submitting blood and hair samples. This came as no surprise to the detectives, and if they really did need the samples, they could have secured a warrant for them. However, it was definitely worth attempting to get any samples possible to have on file for such a dangerous offender. Moving along, the sergeant decided his best play would be to hit Terry with as many factual assertions as possible while he was trying to use lies and manipulations to direct the conversation. Although his lawyer had told him not to talk, Terry was a full-blown narcissist, and of course he agreed to illuminate the investigating detectives in order to preen from them what information they were possibly holding. Because Andrew was forced to work within Terry's direction to not record the interview, he used his warrant as a guide. He made notes next to each point. Terry, of course, lied on every point that he could, with silly counterpoints to each suggestion. He would claim he was never at the hospital, attempting to find out Barbara's condition even though he had left his contact information with Barbara's mother. He was told of the fact that Jackie was brought in from England. They knew she was never his girlfriend, and that she was in fact married at the time of the murder. They also knew that he did not arrive at the Salisbury house until after 2 a.m. the day after Barbara's murder, and he was wearing a cowboy hat. Terry denied calling in any tips on the murder, even though they traced one call made from across his apartment at the McDonald's, moments after he was released from the remand center, or otherwise known as jail in other parts. He was pummeled with the information that he had identified Robert Fournier on July 3rd using the name Terry Barb. And again on January 22nd, he called from the Dominion Shopping Center, saying he had more information. Terry was trapped, staring at the floor he resigned, I don't know why I did. 
He was pressured on wearing the cowboy hat and boots and carrying the knife. In fact, he was trapped in the corner of the room with the suggestion that the most damning evidence was his own denials. They implied guilt. The sergeant told Terry that if he lost his appeal and went in for Barbara's murder, it was almost a freebie. He could only be sentenced to so much time in Canada, and Terry seemed to stop and reflect on this information. The sergeant's disclosure was that he was aware of some details of the horrendous family life Terry had been raised in, and that seemed to open some doors. When reminded of the painful memory of his parents leaving a pig's head in his crib, only to watch him through his window and tapping on the glass to wake him up. They did this so they could catch him wake up and panic in fear and covered in blood. Terry corrected Andrew and claimed it was a pig's leg and that they had tied it to him. So he couldn't get away from it. Terry was telling the truth for the first time. After three hours of back and forth, the two detectives had worn out and Terry was losing interest too and he wasn't offering much in the way of information. It was decided that Detective Sergeant Brown and Michalajewski would talk to him again the next day and end for the time. The next day, the interview commenced with Terry complaining about the way he was being portrayed in the newspaper article again. Showing his inability to see his dire position and focusing on the least important thing going on in his life in general but only the things that were happening to him right now seemed to concern him. The interview itself was going nowhere, and the sergeants didn't have any real incentive to offer him in order to gain a confession. Terry was exhausting with his circular arguments and generally unpleasant. Faced with the major points that demonstrated Terry was, in fact, Barbara's murder, he denied each one, regardless of the fact that each point could be corroborated with witnesses. Things turned intense, telling Andrew that once he had a decision in May of his current case, he claimed he was willing to talk about some of the cases and inferred he was willing to deal, adding, but the Winnipeg one, I just can't do it. As the reinvestigation continued, the investigators into Barbara's case tried to keep as much information as possible from the public. Things had changed by this point. No longer were requests for sealing orders put in for warrants. In no time, the public was able to learn what they believed Terry Arnold did in the case of Barbara Stoppel. An editorial in the Winnipeg Free Press titled, Police Suddenly Opened the Book, Nicholas Hurst wrote that he suspected that the police were revealing why they were still pursuing a suspect and what had gone wrong in the Sofno investigation was more like a public relations move. It was unusual for the police to allow details of a warrant to be accessible to the press. He was right. It didn't sound like the usual police behavior, and the reason was that the public should rightfully know what happened. And more to that, the families deserved to know. They could not charge Terry Arnold without more evidence, and in a short while, Terry would know that too. Manitoba had made an offer to Terry in exchange for his confession in the Barbara Stoppel case. As well, British Columbia's Crown Office had ordered a deal in the Christine Brown case for manslaughter. He was offered 10 years with no dangerous offender designation. Terry's lawyer indicated he would recommend Terry take the offer. Terry Arnold had rejected the offer from British Columbia. 
and it appeared that Andrew Michalajewski would have to testify in the retrial for the Christine Brown case. One week later, he learned from Prolique that he would not have to testify if Terry was to go to a retrial. They didn't want an investigator that was so closely associated with the Stoppel case because it may confuse the issue of wrongful convictions. Then, suddenly, on March 29th of 2002, Andrew received a devastating call from Bob Leger. Terry's charges had been dropped, and he was already released. It was later revealed by Jeff Gall of the Penticton Crown's office that once a stay of proceedings was entered, they had no choice but to release Terry. The Crown had completed a file review and had to come to the conclusion that they would likely have no success if they went to trial. Rather than risk acquittal, they decided to stay the charges, and that gave them the open possibility of charging him later if anything more substantial could be confirmed. Terry was thought to have gone directly to Victoria, but it was unsettling to the Stoppel family that he was out and in the public. Just as in the past, once released, Terry focused on finding easy prey. He attempted to have a mentally handicapped female persuaded to open a joint bank account with him, and he was planning on marrying her. The police intervened, and an inquiry into charging him for harassment was initiated. Terry later moved to a seedy apartment, and it was being paid for by an unknown person who was said to be assisting him in the endeavor to write a book on the story of his life. Authorities on Vancouver Island were still keeping tabs on Terry. Once, a female acquaintance claimed that Terry admitted to killing 19 girls in Canada and the U.S., and he bragged that his first murder was Barbara Stoppel. But anonymity was his strongest protection, so the RCMP, Victoria Police, and the media kept surveillance on him, and it left him a frustrated sex offender surrounded by watching eyes. A task force was created in 2004 by the RCMP. They wanted to get a charge in on Terry for the murder of Christine Brown. Now, Terry was never able to do anything alone without the media or the police reporting on him. He was under a microscope. Early in 2005, he was observed talking with a young girl on a rather secluded road. Central Saanich police crashed his party and he was unable to move ahead on what could have been his next crime. Now, his lust had nowhere to be directed, and finally he was being investigated for producing child pornography. Then, on March 25th of 2005, he was notified by police that they would be coming to him the next day with a warrant for his DNA. Now, the possibility of being charged again for the murder of Christine Brown was hanging like a dagger over his head. This was the end of the line for the sex deviant and murderer. He could not tolerate the life that he knew in prison, and even his now freedom was wrought with pressures preventing him from seeking new victims. And the looming charges for past ones were not subsiding either. On March 27, 2005, Terry Arnold committed suicide. According to Andrew Michalajewski, he had taken a large amount of pills and swallowed them down with a 40-ounce bottle of rum. Terry was found in his cesspool of an apartment after someone called the Victoria police to check on his well-being. 
He had left a three-page handwritten suicide note. Although the note was long, not much information was gleaned from its contents. The only thing re-quoted was a claim that he made saying, I didn't kill anybody. It was one of his usual denials, and of course his professional victim claims, that the media and police had brought him so much attention it made it hard for him to live a normal life. It was not lost on anyone that there were no tears shed for this repeated sex offender, child rapist, thief, animal abuser, and in his most glorious moments, a murderer, could not go around anymore exacting what he termed a normal life. First of all, suicide notes are actually really unusual. Like, the vast majority of suicides don't have one. So, if you write a suicide note, he was drinking a lot, he was using a lot, and he was probably aware of where his limits were, and he was pushing those physical limits. And he may have had a couple of overdoses already, right? And so that kind of says to me, maybe it wasn't so much a deliberate suicide. He may have been told, you are going to go back to jail for this. You will be going back to prison. Now, in prison, the affectionate term for anyone involved in child sex crimes is a chomo, child molester. Among adults especially, that's a good way to die in prison and in very unpleasant ways. You know, for the most part, people, you know, everybody who goes to prison pretty much to a man is afraid of rape. You know, is afraid that they will be sexually assaulted in prison. And, you know, by and large, they're not. It's not as common. I mean, it happens. But by and large, the way to avoid being raped in prison is to not be an asshole and that includes both your your carriage in prison but also what you're charged with and if you're known to have been charged with child pornography you know or child rape either one kind of the same thing you're going to have a real unpleasant time and he would know this because he's served time before and he may have just decided, well, I'm just going to keep using and using and using. And either my time outside will be one incredible binge before I go back to jail. Or I'll die this way. I don't really care which. The most elated about the news was Sergeant Andrew Mikhailajewski. Of all the years of investigation into the wrongful conviction of Thomas Sofno and the search for evidence to put Terry Arnold away for the Barbara Stoppel murder had stolen so much from him. It took precious time away to spend with his family. It challenged his health. In his efforts to hold the Winnipeg police to task in their failings, his was pushed into retirement for submission of the Mikhailajewski report. This was a document making recommendations on how to prevent the wrongful conviction of Thomas Sofano from being repeated. And then, in his elation when he called his wife to tell her that Terry was gone, halfway through his sentence, she stopped him and told him that the family had just put down their 12-year-old golden Labrador retriever bow. But, once again, he was wrapped up in the case when he should have been there for his family. Doing the right thing is hard on more than just the one committed to doing it, and you can go uncelebrated for the privilege. The rewards are usually limited to the peace of mind that you've done what you know you should. A feeling Terry Arnold never knew and probably never cared for. 
the biggest shame is not that, as reported by Victoria Police, Terry died in his underwear, alone, covered in his own vomit, while watching pornography, as he slowly succumbed to a painful demise crawling around on his hands and knees. The bigger shame was in the beginning and grew from there. Barbara Stoppel, the beautiful 16-year-old girl that was ready to tie up work at the donut shop and go out with her friend to a Christmas party, ended up losing consciousness in the company of Terry Arnold. Looking to him and his pockmarked face with the beady eyes, telling her, this is real, and you aren't going to be okay. And the lights went out.